We're, we're closing out our study of the spiritual f- fruit of the Spirit today, this morning. Uh, we've spent the last nine weeks kind of settling into that and looking at those and studying those. The conversations I've had with folks as we've walked through those uh, have been very encouraging that you've been recognizing just God working and uh, challenging you, not just to do something, but to really rest in Him, to, to pursue Him, to see Him do His work that then enables you to do um, what you've been called to. Because the reality is we're not really going to be able to practice these things or to obey the commands that are all across Scripture pertaining to them, like love, for example, to love your neighbor, to love God first, to love your enemy, to love one another. Billy just prayed about us loving um, uh, loving one another as an example of us being in Christ. So we're not going to be able to follow those commands unless he produces something in us, does something in us to make us able to do that. And so one of the points that I brought every week when I've preached uh, is this, only by the work of God through Jesus the Son and his Holy Spirit is the fruit of a transformed life produced in his people. This is God's work. This is him working, enabling us to live in light of that work. So only by God's gracious work through Jesus and his Holy Spirit can we love like he has loved us. Can we rejoice always? Can we enjoy peace that passes understanding? Only by God's gracious work through Jesus and his Holy Spirit can we uh, express patience. Uh, The word I actually prefer to patience because we apply patience in so many different ways is long-suffering. It's one of the few places where I'd actually point to the King James Version over a modern English translation. They use the word long-suffering because it's towards one another that we suffer with one another over long periods of time rather than just immediately seeing change. We suffer long. We get to do that. We're able to do that because God has graciously worked in us through Jesus and his spirit. So only through that can we be long-suffering towards others. Can we express the kindness that God has expressed towards us that doesn't just look at our sin and ignore it or sweep it under the rug, that kindly leads us to repentance. Only by his work can we be good. And I I said this, and and I think Bob sought to point it out, that, yeah, in many ways the gospel is about making dead people alive, but it's about making bad people good. He makes us like him. And he is good. And he makes us good so that we can do the good works he's called us to do. Only by God's gracious work through Jesus and the Holy Spirit can we be made faithful to him so that we endure in faith towards him, but then also express faithfulness so that we become trustworthy in the world that we live. Like he's the one that gives us the ability to be stable and certain and, and secure and trustworthy to other people. And only by his gracious work through Jesus and the Holy Spirit are we able to be made gentle. As Caleb brought last week and pointed to us last week, rather than tearing things down, we can actually build things up as we express the truths of God as we stand boldly for these things, as we, as we stand with strength and conviction applied with the gentleness that Jesus approached every one of us with. So only by God's gracious work can we do any of those things, and only by his work is this transformed life possible, but only by his work is, is, is as true it is as it is for those eight, it is as true for this ninth one. It's only by his work that we can begin to express self-control. So we're going to look at that today. We're going to, we're going to study and, and see what the scripture has for us. We're going to begin reading a Galatians. We're actually going to change the passage this week just a little bit because I need to capture a little bit more context so that you'll see this unfold later. But we're going to begin reading in verse 13 and read through verse 26. So we'll read, we'll pray, then we'll dig in. For you are called to freedom, brothers, Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, 
and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let's pray. Father, as we look today at self-control, as we close out this study, I pray that you'd guard our hearts from running into the legalism that Paul is guarding the Galatian church against, that somehow we got to figure out how to put these on rather than pursue you. I I pray that you would guard us from trying to become self-righteous. Look at us. Look at what we can do. Standing on our own efforts and our own works because the works of the flesh will never be in step with the works of the fruit of the Spirit. So guard us. But as we pursue you, I pray that you would produce in us these things. That we couldn't help but be any other way because you have made us to be like your son, Jesus. I pray, Father, that today through your word, you would challenge and encourage. You would convict and, and exhort that, that through the preaching, that, Father, you would, that you would, well, that you would work and do what only you can do. And that that we would uh, just be grown as a result of it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We like to keep things under control, right? We're we're talking about self-control. And we like control. I think it's a normal function of people in our world. In a world that things are always changing and and, and, and (laughs) almost never constant, right? we, We look for and long for control. Control's a good thing. Parents are supposed to have a measure of control over their kids. Like there's, you, you know, just as well as I do, that you've side-eyed those folks in the grocery store that their kids are throwing fits on the floor and not controlling their kids properly, right? Like we, we expect a measure of control to be exerted. And maybe, maybe, maybe you don't agree with me about parents with children, but I bet you agree with me about people's hair. Think about it. Think about, think about the aisles of hair care products given to making straight hair have more body, curly hair not be so full, or just to control those curls so that they're a little bit less curly. And when those hair care products fail us, we blow them or press them, iron them. I've known people that have used egg whites to conform their hair to a particular Style is there? I I don't know. I I didn't even think about this till this moment. It was a thing in the '80s, and I know some of you weren't alive in the '80s, but it was a thing to use egg whites to make your hair stand straight on end and be stiff. That no matter how hard the wind blew, your hair it was there. But eggs, man, they they like breed disease, don't they? I think about putting egg whites. I don't get the. I don't. Sorry, I'm, I digress, but I just have thought about the salmonella that's growing in people's hair. But I had a family member that swore by egg whites. Was, I mean, it just was a thing. And, 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 so, and, and then, you know, it was blowing and, and spraying and gels and mousses trying to cause it to be stiff. And, and, and the last thing I see commonly is spraying it. All the blowing, all the pressing, and finally the spray. Just because we want control. And I know that's a silly little thing. But how many of us leave the house, those of us that are here challenged? I know I'm looking around the room. There's some of us. We don't care anymore. We gave up. (laughs) Our hair got up and left. We don't control it anymore. But those of you that have it, how many of you go out of the house without thinking about what your hair is like and not seeking to exercise or seek control over it. It's a pretty common thing. And and, and it extends to all kinds of other areas of our life. We long for control, and when we can't control, 
the circumstances and situations of our life, it's a lot like having a bad hair day. Right? I'm just having this terrible day because things aren't going the way. We definitely don't want to lose control, right? So the, so, so the idea of having control, we definitely don't want to lose it. We want to maintain it. We seek to make, make plans for it. The idea of losing control is, is, is often, I mean, that's a bad thing. We don't, we don't want to do it. We want to maintain control. It, it causes losing, the idea of losing control, just consider the amount of fear, anxiety, stress that's caused when the plans that you've made don't function, the, the, things don't unfold the way you plan them. I mean, just consider this last week that you lived in this world. How many of you, every day that you woke up, went exactly to plan, right? Probably none. We don't live in a world like that. I mean, you might have had a day, but did you have every day? Did you, did, did you get the benefit that every day exactly all of your plans unfolded? And it causes the stress, it causes fear, like the idea of future events not unfolding to your plan? Does that not cause fear? Does that not give a sense of stress? But then we're stuck with this tension because not only we, we want control and we seek to exercise control over the nth degree of our life to the point that we're concerned about what our hair looks like. But we walk in this tension that if we have too much control or we seek to exercise too much control, then we're called things like control freak, overbearing, manipulative, coercive, right? Like there's this, this tension in our world that we live in that control's a good thing until it's too much, but then who gets to decide what's too much? It's a, it's a challenge. It's a struggle for, for people to consider these things and so then we settle on this idea, and, and this is a common view in the world. I actually studied it. I, I went looking for it. I went to figure it out, and psychologists have come up with all kinds of ways that you can control the one thing in this world that you can actually seemingly have a perception of real control over, and that's yourself. Over and over and over, I found psychological uh, articles and peer-reviewed things that came down to the reality that the one thing you can potentially control in this world is yourself. And I think people get that. Yeah, so it's not the situation or the circumstance, it's how I react. I, I saw one article this week that named off 50 things that you can control in the world, and they all had to do with self. How, how you react when somebody mistreats you, how often you smile in the day, and all these things. And, and, and I think, to some degree, we're settled with that idea. Well, okay, well, I'm just going to fight for control. But Paul didn't let us live there. Just exert control over yourself. He doesn't let us hold that view. Just control your emotions. He doesn't let us hold that view. Control your actions. He doesn't let us hold that view. Because self-control is not something you can exert on your own. It's a work of God through his spirit. Only by the work of God through Jesus the Son and His Holy Spirit is the fruit of a transformed life produced in His people. <laughs> but only by the work of God through Jesus the Son and His Holy Spirit can we finally gain the self-control that reflects God's gracious response to sinners. Maybe you know people who exude self-control, right? So I don't, I don't, I don't think that, 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 that these people live very disciplined lives. I, I don't think that Paul's suggesting that there's no... no no, no, no ounce of self-control in the world. I don't think that he's intending to say that. In fact, in another passage where he refers to self-control, he references athletes who are living very disciplined lives, training so that they can win. And he calls Christians to this same level, this same discipline, the same control of self. But here he shows us, he makes clear to us that if we're ever going to actually control ourselves to the degree that we're called to in the Scripture, the only way we're ever going to do that is by the Spirit producing that self-control. So maybe you do know some athletes that have lived very disciplined lives, controlled their diet, controlled their activity, controlled their, their, their sleep and waking schedules, and, and lived to these, to these very rigid expectations. Maybe you know these people who have, who have formed some sense of, of 
discipline in their life that you look at them and you say, that, that's self-discipline. But I think what the scripture makes clear is that they're not controlling their deepest desires. In fact, I would suggest if they were, they would not be struggling with sin. They wouldn't be struggling with thoughts. They wouldn't be struggling with desires that are opposed to the spirit. Before we jump into that any further, let's really define this. Let's define the term that we're talking about. Let's really understand what he's calling us to. So, so, so the that the word in the Greek is inkratia. Inkratia. It, it, it means to master, gain mastery over oneself, to exercise power over oneself, to, to, to gain some level of dominion over oneself. Uh, one, of the, one of the commentators that I read from this week um, defined it this way, ability to, to restrain one's emotions desires and action, an ability to restrain one's emotions, desires, and actions. The, the idea of, of, of self-control is it's a life of restraint. See, not, every, not everything we do is an automatic no. There's plenty of things in the Bible that are clearly a no. Sexual immorality, no, you can't do that. So, so, so the reality is, is that we need to say no to sexual immorality. But even sex within the right place and time within the marriage between a uh, husband and wife, even in that context, there's a way in which we should restrain and be careful with those desires. It's an unfortunate thing in, in all the times that I've done, in, in all the ways and people I've walked with through uh, marital counseling, repeatedly sex is at the heart of the struggle. The man doesn't get enough and the woman feels like she's giving too much. Just, that's, comp, that's the norm. I'm not saying it's always that way, but it's the norm. And Paul, writing to the, Corinth, to, to the church in Corinth, actually deals with this. But the reason he deals with it is because their lack of self-control. Do not deprive one another, he writes, 1 Corinthians 7, 5, after speaking about marriage and sex as, as both good things. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And here's what ends up happening. I've heard it over and over and over. My wife is not being good to me because she won't give me as much as she's allowing me to be tempted. Maybe the problem is your lack of self-control. Men. Ladies. There is a way in which men are tempted in this way. Maybe your desire not to serve or, or your exertion of control over him might be the reason that you're unwilling to meet him. I, I'm not saying that's always the case. Hear me. But this verse is not given to, to be punitive, to demand something. And they, the problem is lack of self-control. Even within, even within the confines of a marriage where that is the divine assignment, the, the place in which sexual intimacy is worshipful and honorable before God. Maybe the reason that we have to think so much about it is we lack self-control. They had proven their lack of self-control in so many other areas. I mean, Paul had to deal with them in, in the relationship between a, a man who was with his father's wife. And he's like, not even pagans think that that's acceptable, but you're celebrating it. The lack of self-control. The, their, their abuse of the Lord's Supper or coming to the table and drinking so much that they're getting drunk while nobody else, while people that aren't there as early as they are, 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 are left without. And because they're selfishly devoted to their own desires. Over and over, the letter, the first letter to the church in Corinth is rooted in these selfish desires because they lack self-control. They lack an ability to restrain one's emotions, desires, and action. They lack a mastery over themselves, and Paul is calling them over and over to something more. We live in a world where we're often looking for balance. We want to avoid the ditches on the left and the right. We want to stay out of those ditches, but that assumes that the middle of the road is not filled with potholes that tempt us and cause trials and troubles. 
I think this idea of restraint, of self-control, is actually a much better ideal. We live in a world in which many things are good, but we can't let those desires for the good things become God things and displace the God who gave us those gifts. But nor can, should we, nor, nor is it right to remove ourselves and, and, and ignore the, the many gifts and the abundant blessings that he's bestowed on his people simply because we're afraid of enjoying them to the fullest. It's not wrong to want all of God's blessing. It's wrong to want his blessing without the God who gave it or instead of the God who gave it. Paul is calling us to a life of restraint and self-control. I think this is probably why the King James Version translate this, trans, translates this word as temperance. But, but temperance gives, gives way to, too often gives way to, to, to avoidance. Like the idea of not, not enjoying, not living a, a life of joy, but, but being, being so controlled That you're missing out on the many abundant blessings that God has given us. Looking for, bless, looking for, for this balance, it leads us to a place where rather than living righteously in the world that we're no longer of, we seek to avoid everything that it gives us or that God could bless us with in the midst of it. So, so let, me just, let me just break this down a little bit. Let me further press in on this as we seek to understand what this means. Desire a spouse. That's a good thing. Being married is a good thing. But it isn't the only way to enjoy the fullness of God's blessing. And so if you're sitting in this room and you're single, and you long and desire a, a spouse, a husband or a wife, desire it. But don't think that you're less blessed than the person who's married. Don't dismiss the fact that God is your father in the same way he's mine. Desire a family, children, absolutely. The, the word tells us they're a blessing from God. Absolutely, but don't desire them so much that you become angry with God if he doesn't give them. I, 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 trust me, I, I have walked alongside a number of women who are by all accounts of the word, barren, men who are sterile, who grieve over the fact that they can't have children. But God's blessing is on you regardless of whether you have them or not. He is a good and gracious and loving God regardless of the number of children or if you have children. So desire them, but don't let, them, don't, don't let life become meaningful only if you have this. Desire good days. Desire success in your life. Go out, work hard, become successful in this world. Enjoy, enjoy the abundance of God's created order, but don't despise God when he allows suffering to come to your life in difficult circumstances in order to discipline you as his child. Express your emotions. This is one of the things that, in, in fact, in our church history class that we were studying this morning in Reformed Christianity that we often tend to downplay emotions. Emotions are bad. Don't feel. That's not the devil. God created you as emotional beings. Feel. Express. One of the fruits of the Spirit is joy. Be happy. He calls us rejoice always. You know what's striking to me? And this is a, an aside, but what's striking to me is there's nowhere in the Scripture that says mourn always. Is there? Mourn. you got to mourn all the time. Rejoice always so that even in your mourning, your mourning is marked by rejoicing. But your rejoicing at times won't ever be marked by mourning. Express those emotions, feel things, but don't let them run amok. Emotions are good, but unrestrained can cause and create havoc. 
anger gone awry. James tells us the anger of man has never produced the righteousness of God. But Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Man, how, how are we going to do that if we don't exercise self-control? This is the thing, is that this ability to restrain our emotions, our desires, and our actions, this mastery over oneself is not as simple as, I'm just going to muscle up, I'm going to put my big boy pants on, or big girl pants on, depending upon your assigned gender at birth. <laughs> um, you're not going to get it done. This is a work of the Spirit. He produces this in us. So instead of looking for balance, restrain, govern, master, by the power of the Spirit, control your life. That's what he's calling us to. That's the definition. That's the idea that's displayed in this word. But that brings us back to where we were. The flesh dwells under the illusion of self-control while under another's Control. You know people. You've, you've, you've experienced people who live these strongly disciplined lives. And they're not Christians. Now how in the world can I say then that the flesh dwells under the illusion of self-control while under another's control because of this passage we just read? In Galatians chapter 5 verse 17, he tells us that the desires of the flesh are opposed to the spirit and the spirit's opposed to the desires of the flesh. And it, the, the, the desires of the flesh keep you from doing what you want to do. That's imagery that defines and describes life out of control. I want to do, I know I should do, but I don't do. That's a lack of self-control. 519, he then turns around, the works, of the, uh, the works of the flesh are, and he gives us this list. It's not even an inc- a complete list because he comes to the end of that list and he says, and things like these. So it's like sexual immorality, impurity. Uh, you could read them all yourself. I've read them. I, we've seen them over and over, right? And things like these. This unexhaustive list of all the ways in which we indulge ourselves sexually, which we indulge ourselves in idolatry, a God other than the God who gives good gifts, indulge ourselves in drunkenness, Overindulgence, like the the taking on of too much of God's good things. We indulge ourselves. We look at other people's stuff and they're like, oh man, I wish I had that. I deserve that. How can I get that? Envy. All of these things are a lack of control of your own desires, your, your own emotions, your, your own actions. Every last one of these works of the flesh are something other than control. And so, so I'm not suggesting that there aren't people in this world that have their some aspect of their life under control. But no one, no one in this world, apart from the work of the Spirit and, of, in, and through the gospel of Jesus Christ, has ever exercised self-control. To the point that down in the depths of their soul, from the very root of who they are, has controlled their will apart from God, has controlled their desires apart from God, has controlled their emotions or their actions apart from God. So we're not totally devoid of it, but we're not able to express it. In in fact, We are living under a delusion if we think we can. Uh, This also becomes evident in the letter, Galatians 3.1. You just flip back a a couple of chapters. Paul's writing to a church, to Christian people. Why is he writing to them? Because they are being deceived. Because they're beginning to question the gospel. Because they're beginning to lean lean into something that's other than the gospel. So he writes to them, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has confused you? Who has gained control over your mind? Who has fooled you into believing that there's another gospel? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Who has gained power over you? You know the truth. I preached it to you myself, he's saying. And he makes that point all the way through the first part of Galatians chapter 3. He goes on to make this point that we're only justified by faith. And that faith is only by the work of the Spirit. 
And if we're justified by faith, who in their right mind begins to think that we can be sanctified or matured or made more holy by anything but faith? Are you so foolish to believe that getting into faith or getting into salvation, getting justified by faith now, you got to turn around and, and grow up by works of the flesh? Who in their right mind thinks of that if they aren't bewitched, if they aren't under the control of someone else? He's concerned for them. Not even certain, because of the things that they're now beginning to act on, not even certain that their faith was genuine. In Galatians chapter 3, you go back and read it. He actually calls it into question. If it was real. He comes into Galatians 5.1. Reminding them who they are, reminding them the work of Christ on the cross, reminding of the covenantal work of God through Jesus and the new covenant. He comes to this place and he tells these people, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Having been bewitched, having been given given control over to somebody else of your mind and your heart, You're submitting to a yoke of slavery. They were enslaved in sin when Paul met them. They were pagans. They were idol worshipers. They were given to all kinds of things that the Romans would have given themselves to all across Asia Minor. When Paul comes in, he preaches the gospel. And they are, as they come to faith in Christ, they are freed from their sin. And now... They're about to submit their whole lives to a yoke of slavery again as they turn back to the old covenant law. Because these Judaizers are telling them, if you really want to be a good Christian, if you really want to know God, if you really want to walk with him, if you really want his blessing, there's these rules you got to follow. And he tells them the works of the flesh are out of step with the Spirit. Now, that's not freedom. That's actually slavery. It doesn't embolden you or empower you. It actually binds you. We only live with the delusion of the ability to control ourselves apart from the powerful work of God through his Holy Spirit and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything else, everything we were before Christ, anything that we turn to after Christ and begin to depend upon more than or instead of him, anything that we would place our faith in, life only has meaning, we only have value. If anything takes that seat, if anything takes that position other than your Savior, Jesus Christ, the God, God the Father that sent him, or the Holy Spirit that in, in livens you to be able to see it and understand it and begin to believe it. If anything else takes that seat, you're submitting again to another yoke of slavery. He also makes this clear in the book of the letter to the Ephesians. We are not free agents as much as we'd like to think we're free agents. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, he has already opened his letter with what I have heard referred to as a waterfall of worship, prayed this prayer that that these people know increasingly God's provision for them, his grace upon them, his power worked on their behalf. And then he turns and he tells them who they used to be. In chapter 2, verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Just so you get it. They weren't literally dead. They were spiritually dead, right? They were living, breathing, walking around, doing all kinds of things. But they were dead in their trespass and sin, powerless. Dead is dead. It's without power. It's without ability. It's without action, without life. You were dead in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now working the sons of disobedience. That's the devil or spiritual enemy among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. There's this world, the flesh and the devil, that that have this influence over us that we don't even recognize. Now just consider, why, why is it that the church struggles today with the view of gender? Is it because there's a problem in the Bible with gender? Or is it because the world has a view on gender that has begun to seep into the church? 
But why is it that the church has a problem with sexuality? Is it because the Bible has a problem being clear about sexuality? Or is it because the influence of the world is so strong that it's seeped into the church and begun to change our minds about sexuality? Why is it that the church struggles with the idea of being successful and enjoying the abundant? Why, why is it that there's some people that run towards syncretism and others run to avoidance? Why is it that we struggle with those things? Is it because the Bible is unclear about those things or is it because the influence of the world is so strong? Why do you think our culture views one man, one woman as such a central idea of the family? In fact, that's the only acceptable one, or at least has been for most of our history. It's changing, obviously. But when you go into Africa, they think it's crazy that men only have one wife. Who does all the chores at your house? That's what they say. And the women, they're like, you've got to serve him alone? Don't you want help? They think it's so crazy. I, I think in some ways it's because we've been influenced by the Bible and Christianity throughout our history. But why is that breaking down all of a sudden? Why is it all of a sudden called into question that now we can have thruples and all, I don't know, I, I don't keep up enough to come up with all the words, but we can marry inanimate objects and devote ourselves to such crazy things. Is it because the influence of the enemy is actually more powerful than we give him credit for? The one who's at work in the sons of disobedience, the ones who are not connected to Christ at all, being deceived and lied to and made to believe crazy things? The world and the devil have powerful influence that we are dead and unable to overcome and we follow after them apart from Christ. But at the end of the day, what is it that has the final say on what we give ourselves into? Living by the passions of the flesh and the desires of the body. That's why you see people saying, oh, no, 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 I won't give into that, but they give into this. I won't give into that because that's just too far, but... I'll give in to this. That's why even pagans have lines they won't cross. But they'll cross a lot of lines. They'll live in a lot of ways that don't reflect the control because they are under the influence of the world and the devil. And I didn't share it with you, but just so you get it, so that you can see the flow of it, it's, it's almost exactly what he does here in Galatians. Verse 4 turns and contrasts what actually is happening, but God made you alive. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. You know, had no power to overcome the, the, the influence of the world. You had no power to overcome the influence of the devil. You had no power to live except by the desires of your body and the passions of your flesh. You had no power to do anything but God made you alive together with Christ and has seated you in the heavenly realm. So that he comes to verse 2, chapter, chapter 2, verse 8, that you are saved by grace through faith. It's not of yourselves so that no one can boast. This is God's gift. You are Christ's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. Suddenly, we have a control over ourselves. We have an ability to do something we didn't have before. That we can live and step with God. That we can walk in the Spirit. That we can do the things we've been called to do. How and why? Because we lived under a delusion of self-control, of self-will, of being free agents before. What in the world happened? God happened. The Spirit produces self-control that frees God's people. It frees us. That's why at the beginning of chapter 5, I mean, we've looked at this little section in chapter 5 for several weeks, and it's easy to forget that there's more to chapter 5. But he starts with a call to freedom. Such that immediately before he starts talking about the works of the flesh and the, and, and the fruit of the Spirit, he's calling again to freedom. You are called to freedom, brothers. But not a freedom from God, a freedom to live according to God's Word, to live in step with God, to live in relationship with Him. How did you get there? God's powerful work through His Spirit. 
Flesh gives birth to flesh. Spirit gives birth to spirit. That's what Jesus taught us in John chapter 3. You didn't get there on your own. You didn't muscle it up. You didn't determine it on your own. You didn't have the free will or the free desire to just do these things. The spirit had to act on you first. He produces self-control in you. There's people that get it for just a little bit. They fight for it. Immediate response kind of people. But without self-control, without this fruit of the Spirit, that freedom can be very short-lived. Just be more of an image, a wisp of smoke. Be like a plant that comes up that gets choked out by thorns. A plant that comes up that has no root and can get no water because it's planted among the stones. The only ones able to produce real fruit are those who, whose hearts have been prepared and made ready to receive the seed of the gospel. It, with, without this self-control, and here, here's the thing, man, I just get you to see this. I think sometimes we come to this list of, of, of the fruit of the Spirit, and, and, and we look at the first few. Man, love, joy, peace. Oh, I need that. I need that. I, I want that. I, I want patience. Give me patience. We get to these last few, and we, we don't even know the order of them. We oftentimes have, 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 have not even thinking of them, didn't, didn't memorize them, or we get to them, we just name them off so, so fast that we're hardly ever, ever able to really think through them. These final aspects of the fruit, these final words, the, the goodness, the gentleness, the faithfulness, the, the self-control. These are as vital, they are as necessary as the first. Just consider what your life would look like without self-control. You wouldn't be able to practice any of the other fruits that the Spirit produced in you. How could you love someone selflessly in the same way that Christ has loved you selflessly if you didn't have the control to restrain your love of the world, your selfish desires, your desire for self-exaltation? How could you ever love someone like you've been loved if you don't control yourself? How could you rejoice in the midst of mourning? you don't control and have the ability to recognize there is something bigger and truer than my suffering right now. You are suffering such things, the author of Hebrews tells us, because God is treating you as his children. You endure. You have to, you, you, you have to, you, you have to suffer because God is treating you as his children. He is disciplining you like a good father disciplines his children. But how could you ever come to that truth? How could you ever hold to that truth if you don't have control of your heart that longs for the easy path? How could you ever suffer along with anyone if you can't control your desire to get an immediate result? This is the work of the Spirit. The Spirit produces this in His people. The Spirit produces self-control that frees God's People. And it doesn't free us from, it frees us to. The Spirit produces self-control that frees God's people to crucify the flesh, the, the, the desires of the flesh and his passions. Galatians 5 verse 24, this self-control is necessary to do this. You cannot die to your old self. You cannot desire to die to the desires of your flesh or the things that you have passion about that are outside of Christ and are in, in rebellion against the, uh, against the God who sent him. You cannot do that without self-control. The Spirit produces self-control that frees God's people to walk in step with the Spirit. Over and over, we're hearing through the letter of Galatians, you're free, but don't. Walk in the Spirit, live by His fruit, walk in step with the Spirit. There's this, this contrast that's, that, that's sometimes a struggle for us to, to recognize and even struggle to, to find some, some um, um, uh, restraint within Find some way to walk through that tension. Walk in step with the Spirit. That's a command. It's an expectation. It's a responsibility. 
How are we going to live as the Spirit directs us without the ability to restrain our emotions, desires, and actions? Why, why would we choose prayer, time in God's Word, and quiet contemplation over these things when it seems more profitable to fill our lives with activity? You know, the hardest thing for me to do, I'm, I'm just to be honest with you, the hardest thing for me to do after growing up and spending so much time, got to get something done, 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 is thinking that when I block off time in my calendar and I don't answer my phone or answer texts or I just set things aside so that I can sit and pray, that I'm not getting enough done. But I've grown to learn in these last several years that that's the most profitable thing I can do. Maybe if we'd spend a little more time sitting still and knowing he is God, we'd recognize a bit more of God. Why would we ever choose dependence on God's power and strength when we feel so able to accomplish something? I can get it done. I got big shoulders. I can carry that weight. Why would we choose faith and repentance apart from self-control? Who wants to admit they're wrong? And I don't. All of life is to be, all of a Christian's life is to be of repentance. That's one of the truths that come out of the Reformation, right? We're always to be repenting. You know what repentance is? Admitting you're wrong over and over and over every day of the rest of your life. I ran after the wrong thing. I had a false God. I was wrong about this truth. God is right. God is true. God is good. God is great. God is glorious. God is gracious. God is the center of all my life. Every day admitting I was wrong. Without self-control, we're never going to choose any of these things, right? Like, without self-control, we will not walk in step with the Spirit. We've got to have that. The Spirit frees God's people to apply what the Spirit produces. The Spirit produces fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness. I think I said that out of order. (laughs) And there you go. Gentleness, faithful, I think I swapped them. But how are we ever going to put these on in the way that Paul calls us to put them on over and over in this same letter? If we don't control ourselves. Control our emotions, control our actions, control our desires. The Spirit produces, it frees us. To fulfill God's law, Galatians 5, 13 through 15. This is why I wanted to read that extra context. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not let your freedom be used as an opportunity for the flesh. You can't run around sinning and pretending that, oh, God's grace abounds. I'm going to sin more, get more grace, and that's going to be a good thing for the people around me. No, there's a restraint expected. There's a control expected can't just use the freedom we've been given to live any old way we want and do anything our flesh desires or our body longs for. But then he goes on, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We actually are freed not to live according to the law or live under the law's condemnation or to, 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 to have to measure up to the law. We're freed from that. Christ has done it all for us. But he produces something in us that as we control ourselves actually fulfills the very commands that God has given. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's going to fulfill the whole law. Because as I love my neighbor, if I'm ever going to love my neighbor as I love myself, I'm going to have to love God and I'm going to have to receive his love. And that's only ever going to work out as I love my neighbor as myself. But if you bite and devour, if you live selfishly, if you live out of control, Watch out that you are not consumed by one another. We get to fulfill God's law, not because we're under it or we're condemned by it or carrying the weight of it. We get to fulfill God's law because God's spirit has produced in us a freedom to to fulfill God's law, to love one another the way we've been loved. God's spirit has produced in us an ability to grow in self-control. There's no beginning to self-control until the spirit produces it. We've talked through this already. I don't need to, need to drag it out. Let me just point you to a verse, 2 Peter 1, 5 through 8. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge 
and knowledge with self-control. And self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, you keep from being ineffective or unfruitful. It's something we're growing up in, adding to. It's not self-control all by itself. It's all these other things that the Spirit is producing in us. It doesn't stop at knowledge. It doesn't, begin, it, it doesn't stop at virtue. It doesn't stop at being steadfast or faithful. It doesn't stop at becoming more like God. But growing. Always growing. So that we never, we never cease to be fruitful. I think this is one of the reasons why in Titus 1.8, the same idea of self-control is a character trait that's looked for in the elders of a church. Because a man who represents self-control is a man who's mature in his faith. He's mature in Christ. He understands and knows God. But he's not stopped at, oh, i got some knowledge of God. He's pressing in. He's pursuing God and growing up. The Spirit frees us to control our thoughts and emotions. Paul calls Christians people that, that, that who do, he calls them in, in 2 Corinthians, he calls them people who don't fight with wars, fight wars with weapons that are of the flesh. Instead, he turns around and says this, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Just because you can think it doesn't make it true. Just because you can perceive it doesn't make it true. Just because you can feel it doesn't make it true. Just because you got this world that you're living in in your mind doesn't make it true. We take these thoughts captive. We bring them into submission and obedience to Christ. We measure them in light of the word of God. We measure them in light of the truth of the gospel. The Spirit giving us the ability to control our thoughts and emotions. Trust me, I know how hard that is. A season of anxiety that didn't cripple me, but... Whew, it was tough. I, there's nights I thought I was having a heart attack. I, I, I thought a couple times I would wake Amy up because I felt like an elephant sitting on my chest that couldn't breathe. I'm grateful to God I don't deal with that like some of you deal with that. But I told myself the truth over and over for about a year, and I couldn't make my body conform to it until I got away and I sat in silence and prayer for two days. So dependent upon myself and finding success in my ability and a fear of failing that I was riddled with anxiety. And I needed to just sit in front of the Lord and be still and know that He is God. And He met me in that. No lights shined, no, 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 uh, what do they call that when uh, no, no Shekinah filled the room with me, right? I was out in a very simple room, no internet, no, no phone. To be able to call Amy and let her know I was okay, I had to drive up a hill to get there and just simply away, praying through the Psalms. And God met me. Peace. Because God's Spirit produces this in us, it frees us to face temptation without failing or falling to it. So having put to death the desires of the flesh, the 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 passions of our flesh, the desires of the body, having put those things to death, when we face temptation, we on our road, when it's no longer we're trying to avoid ditches or, oh, there's a pothole, I gotta, I gotta find a way to avoid, I, gotta, I just gotta, I gotta withdraw. We can face temptation without falling to it. Every time, as we grow in this self-control, every time we face temptation as a believer in Jesus Christ, as one empowered by the Spirit with self-control, it's actually an opportunity to do the thing that honors God. You actually get to honor him with your life as you face these temptations. You actually get to model Christ who faced temptations, every one that we've ever faced. He knew them. Face him. And he honored God with his whole life. The Spirit frees us to worship in spirit and truth. Without self-control, without the ability to control your fear of God and your desire to, to do something in, in order to him, for him to receive you, how in the world do you ever truly worship until you've been given the ability to control that? A healthy fear of God is right. 
but a fear of God that leads you to do everything that you can to appease him of his anger is out of bounds. And no real worship will ever come from that. Until you're walking in faith in Christ and your acceptance in Christ and your sanctification in Christ and the the power of the Spirit, you will not be able to worship in spirit and in truth. And because the Spirit frees us, He enables us to reflect God's nature in a fallen world. Over and over, we've come to this place, and I, I hope you've seen it. I hope you've heard it from those that have... The whole thing that God is doing as His Spirit produces these things in us is freeing us to finally reflect and represent Him as His image bearers in a fallen world. He is restoring us. He is conforming us to the likeness of His Son so that as people encounter us, they actually get to see a view, a reflection, a representation of the Savior Jesus Christ. It's actually true of all the aspects Every one of these things are true of him. Every one of these things are produced in us by the Spirit so that as we live in this fallen world, as we, his people together, live in this fallen world, we get to enjoy those fruit in one another's lives and the world by his common grace gets to see that fruit, see the distinction and the difference. And these are the measure of what it is to be a Christian. I think it's striking that in the world we live today, in the, in the age of Christianity that we live today, that there's a lot of ways that we measure one another as good Christian or bad Christian. I've wrestled with how to say this or where to say it or when to say it, but I think as we come to the end of this sermon on this last trait, I think it's the right time and I think it's the right place. But a few weeks ago, I was confronted with the reality that I had read articles that week where Christian people were writing and condemning other Christians because they didn't agree with some social perspective, some political view, some view of, of what you're supposed to do. What... I'm certain that you've got lists of things like that in your mind. How can that person be a good Christian and vote for that candidate? How can that person be a good Christian and think about the world the way they do? How can a person be a good Christian and not live up to my set of criteria for what a good Christian is? I can't find those in the Bible. This is what God makes us people who represent his attributes, his glory, his goodness, his grace, his power. We represent that as his spirit produces these things in us, and we get to enjoy those together, and we get to portray them in front of a lost world that needs to know God. And he is the standard for all these things not least of which is self-control. God's response to our sin sets the standard for self-control. Eternal hell isn't too far a step when you recognize the holiness of God. But he has demonstrated great restraint in ever offering salvation to anyone. Eternal salvation offered through a methodical work that he has done, him and him alone, by his own power, through coming and taking on flesh and dwelling among us, taking it on and and facing it over and over, dealing with our rebellion and our reactions to his holiness and and his almighty position in this world. And then actually bestowing it upon his enemy so that we would desire him. And that we could walk in step with him. He is the measure. He is the standard. And that's true of every one of these traits. So brother, sister, Christian, as we come to this place that we're closing out this study, let me encourage you with this. Put these on. 
Not because you've got to produce them on your own, but because the Spirit has promised, God has promised that His Spirit is producing them in you. So by the act of controlling your actions, your emotions, your desires, conform your life to walk in step with the Spirit. To live a godly life that that reveals his love, that reveals your reason for joy, that reveals the, the peace that passes understanding, that, that, that reveals your desire to walk a long time beside sinful people, just like he's done for you. That's treated you with not, not just patience, but kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and, and even self-control. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, Let me encourage you to this. You won't ever be able to do this apart from him. So turn. Place your faith in him. Repent of all the ways you've been wrong and all the false gods you've pursued. And you trust him and him alone. And watch the spirit begin to work. Converting you from death to life. From bad to good. From godless to godly. In all the ways that he will conform your life to reflect the image of his son. Let's pray.